You've got the plague. I got a fever. You've got the plague. Welcome to The Plague, the podcast where we look not just at the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, but at the societal plagues, the plagues created by human socioeconomic systems that make the coronavirus more virulent and dangerous. I'm your host, L.M. Bogat, broadcasting from my shelter-in-place bunker, and every episode we examine a different societal plague, a political or social pre-existing condition that, cross-indicated with the coronavirus, makes it deadlier than it could otherwise ever be. The coronavirus infects the human body, but what illnesses in our body politic make us more vulnerable? Economic inequality, environmental devastation, labor precarity? We pick a different social plague each week and talk with an expert about how that plague makes this pandemic worse and what we can do about it. Artificially intelligent bot accounts attack politicians and public figures on social media. Conspiracy theorists publish junk news sites to promote their outlandish beliefs. Campaigners create fake dating profiles to attract young voters. We live in a world of technologies that misdirect our attention, poison our political conversations, and jeopardize our democracies. This is the plague that Oxford professor Philip Howard takes on in his new book, Lie Machines, How to Save Democracy from Troll Armies, Deceitful Robots, Junk News Operations, and Political Operatives. With massive amounts of social media and public polling data, and in-depth interviews with political consultants, bot writers, and journalists, Philip N. Howard offers ways to take these lie machines apart. And you can learn more about this book at liemachines.org. We're very happy to have Philip as our guest to talk about the plague of lie machines on this episode. Philip Howard is the director of the Oxford Internet Institute and a statutory professor at Balliol College, Oxford. His research has demonstrated how new information technologies are used in both civic engagement and social control in countries around the world. His research and opinion writing has been featured in the New York Times, Financial Times, and many other international media outlets. Recently, he was awarded the National Democratic Institute's 2018 Democracy Prize, and Foreign Policy Magazine named him a global thinker for pioneering the social science of fake news. Dr. Howard, we're so happy to have you here on The Plague, and can you open up the conversation telling us a little bit more about this plague of lie machines that we're confronting in our society today. Well, thank you very much for having me, Larry. I think the it, it's a plague in the sense that uh, it's infecting public life. It's pernicious. It's on multiple platforms. It's uh, hard to stop. It's uh, propagated by politicians in our countries and governments overseas. I think... Uh, you know, our, our work in this area started in 2014, in the summer of 2014, when the Malaysian Airlines flight was shot down over Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I was living in Budapest at the time, and I saw my Hungarian friends get three kinds of stories about what was going on over social media. They got the story that Americans shot the plane down, and... Uh, And then they got the story that Ukrainian democracy advocates shot the plane down. 
because Ukrainian democracy advocates thought Putin was flying on commercial from Amsterdam to, uh, to Malaysia. Wow. The third story was of a lost tank from World War II that had come out of the great forests of, Ukra- of Ukraine confused and uh, accidentally shot down the plane. And the, uh, you know, the, each, each of these stories was equally ridiculous. And it's that point where we re- I realized that these, the strategy here was not so much about giving people one narrative to respond to, but multiple different, conflicting, equally ridiculous narratives. Mm. And I think the surprise for me over the years has been to see this, this kind of infection go from being something that dictators do to their own people to being something that dictators do to voters and democracies, mm. and then transforming again to becoming to become something that politicians in democracies do to their own voters. Right. right. So the infection spread over the years. Wow. It metastasized, as it were. Yes. Never in a this is never taking a benign form, I can imagine. I mean, this is pernicious and it's authoritarian, isn't it inherently? it It changes, yeah, it adapts. Okay. It uh, works with whatever is the issue of the day. It right. uh, involves social media, uh, the algorithms that social media firms have come up with. It involves the big data from your credit card records and uh, mm-hmm. you know, the things that you tweet. if if there's if somebody can make a political inference, from the data you've left behind on your data databases, they will. I see. How does it work uh, when, I mean, I understand you're in Belarus and it's a dictatorship and there's just disinformation everywhere. Um, how exactly does someone like, let's say, Putin uh, use this technology, and I don't want to say it's only Putin, but uh, to undermine the public will as expressed in re- elections say, in the United States? Well, let's start with the Putin story. Um, okay. it, within Russia, there were a couple of interesting, uh, I mean, interesting, appalling examples uh, from the mid, uh, mid-2010s mid where there were huge fires and uh, kids being kidnapped off the streets of um, Moscow. And people would use social media to try to coordinate, um, to try to find these missing kids. Russians would use social media to try to fight the fires because clearly the government wasn't able to fight the fires. And then, uh, and of course, the Arab Spring happened 2010, 2011. And that, that event, and those fires, and the missing kids, and these, civil, these civic uses of social media showed dictators like Putin that, you could, that social media was a risk, uh, uh-huh. possibly a threat, that democracy advocates would use social media uh, to try to catch them off guard. I think that's the point at which uh, Putin, others, realized that you could also use social media for control, that you could use it for surveillance, that you could gather large amounts of data about people and um, try to anticipate their needs, figure out when they would vote, or, or worse, figure out what messages you could send them to discourage them from voting mm-hmm. or to get them to vote for your favorite candidate. Right. And the, so corporations use big harvest, use big, big data for profit. Facebook makes a tremendous amount of money <clears throat> with this, but it also has a, a political angle that uh, large uh, governments will also use it 
use that data to their advantage for power. And there may be a mixture in terms of Facebook can be, or Twitter, or can be complicit in the use of the data they harvest. Is that is that right, or are they? Yeah, that's a good way to st- good way to tell the story. I remember in in the twenty after twenty sixteen in the U.S., the the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence found that the Russians had simply paid for ads in rubles. Right, right? they'd paid for ads for their favorite political candidates. Mm-hmm. In, in, Just in a rubles. good customer. They were, cl- they were customers, they were online customers uh, just like any other. Now, since yeah. then, the platforms have, have adapted. They no longer take payments in rubles. Um, okay. And they do a little bit of um, oversight of who's putting ads. Um, but, you know, we're currently in a health crisis now, and um, there are people buying ads about uh, ads to encourage people to liberate the states uh-huh. that are uh, on. Uh, doing these preventative measures to control COVID. So ad buying, I mean, your question is a good one. Ad buying is, is up a, it's the lucrative stuff. Right. Well, uh, I've heard some folks say, why does Twitter allow the president, now this is uh, related, but not exactly what we're talking about, because it's so open, when the president tweets disinformation and things that are patently untrue, why does Twitter allow it? Well, first of all, it's because he's the president. But um, uh, the other point someone made as well, he has so many millions of followers, it's an income generator for Twitter. So Twitter would be losing a lot of money if they tried to say to the president and many of his popular followers, we're going to cancel your account if you keep spreading disinformation. So this mixture of profit and social control is kind of pernicious, I guess. I appreciate your point about the current problem we're having of some often armed, not always armed, uh, and funded by uh, uh, billionaires, the the social networks that are bringing armed uh, protesters to say, open up the state and uh, the, sh- the uh, quarantine, um, despite all the data and factual evidence we have that it's the only way to get through this is to go through a quarantine period. Every country on earth that has COVID has found this to be true. We're also the same form of human and mammal. We have to do the same thing. We have the same biology. And yet we have these arch conservative uh, sort of astroturf movements, you know, uh, and for those who are listening, it's just shorthand. There are grassroots movements that organize in the neighborhood level and build up and become a big movement. Then there's astroturf is the term for an artificial grassroots where a major news network that's very conservative will promote something and it's funded by very wealthy uh, right-wing billionaires. And then you have a movement that's been created from the top down, not the bottom up. Uh, And that's a lot of what we're finding with these movements that are saying in the quarantine, despite all the danger. Uh, Just wanted to mention that since you evoked that problem we're having right now, uh, Phil, um, what's the process by which bots or this kind of disinformation or lie machines are helping to encourage the destructive behavior we're seeing right now with those movements? Well, let's work with the, the example that we've been talking through so far. Um, The latest research has exposed, our latest research has exposed the role of state-backed media organizations in China and Russia in starting, so this is, if we we want to talk about the um, epidemiology of misinformation, right? Perfect. One of the starting points here is major, is Russia Today, or CGTN, uh, the large Chinese outlets, and they will 
they'll start a story by saying, um, by reporting on another expert outside of Russia or China who's asking a, a tough question. Um, and a couple of weeks ago, the tough question was uh, about whether the coronavirus had originated in a lab or not. Uh-huh. And, and, and the way to do this reporting is to say, an uh, Italian doctor, uh, a doctor from Milan in northern Italy where the, where the crisis has really hit, has really hit hard, people hard, is not so sure that, that it originated in Wuhan or that it's, it's naturally occurring. Uh, he's wondering if, if maybe it was issued in a lab. And so if the state media agencies and their partners, say, uh, create a story with a headline, Italian doctor wonders out loud about whether the coronavirus is created in a lab, that starts, that starts a trail of stories. I don't know. Was coronavirus created in a lab? Was it created in the United States? Maybe it was created in the United States, and it was actually designed to, to blame China or affect China's currency process, uh, prices or, or to do something to the Russians, right? It creates this, this flow of other stories and speculations. Uh-huh. And, you know, the, the mastery here involves rhetoric. So uh-huh. you, you use these rhetorical, these um, dramatic yeah. photos, these rhetorical flourishes, to uh, suggest that that maybe RT has the inside story, uh-huh. or that, that this website, this new website that you've never heard of, that is not a trusted journalist source of journalism, uh, they may have the inside scoop, and and they're keeping it from the mainstream, you know. But they'll tell you right. the truth, uh, and so that creates this buzz around conspiracies, and you know the other. I think there's limits to the biology metaphor, but there's one really interesting part of it is that our human, our brains, our thinking minds, have cognitive biases. We we yes. we like to find information that confirms things we already know. Right. Uh, we don't like to. We won't naturally look for information that makes us look stupid or makes it look <laughs> like we made a a poor decision before. So. Right. Facebook, social media firms, their advertising mechanisms, they take advantage of these cognitive biases. And if you voted one way in 2016, you're more likely to continue to think uh, things that would have, you know, fit in the, the package, the ideological package around whichever candidate you supported. And you're likely to continue to reject things that make your favorite political candidate look like adult. Right. So, so this, and, and they can make a profile. They can make a profile, and you just so folks know, when you're on Facebook, every like, angry face, smiley face, whatever, every message you send can get parsed for keywords. There's nothing private about it. So, um, it's just something to be aware of. You are being uh, harvested, and you are being profiled. Yeah, didn't mean to interrupt. I just wanted. To oh, I just wanted to add the latest yeah. um, advertising sciences. Um, the latest scientists of advertising say that they can predict public mood, no, they can predict your individual mood three months out based on the things that you are writing now into your Gmail account. Right. There's, wow. enough, there's enough data to be able to anticipate public mood three months out. So if, you're, if you want to move the dial politically, you want to hire those data scientists. Right. If there's an election in November... 
you want them to, to get to work for you, uh, to make sure public mood is, is uh, swinging in your favor months right. in advance, right? Absolutely. And you can start to, it, it, with the slow burn of, uh, of this fake information through the methods you've started to outline. In other words, all I need to do at first is just sow seeds of doubt into the whirlwind of evidence. There's a whirlwind of evidence, but I'm going to sow it. Sow some random questions that will undermine it in a not obvious way. That's in, it's not obviously in my interest yet. Somebody's then, hiding something somewhere. Right, right. It's not all true here. And then then you bring it around with your bots and uh, created entities on the internet that have befriended people online, right? They create profiles of people, quote unquote, who over time become friends with you on the internet and you think these people are real and you're following them on Twitter. And then just before the election, they've befriended you by talking about cooking and what have you. And then they start talking about the internet. These are not real people. These are entities created by uh, legends. The, the term we mm -hmm. use is legends, right? They're, they're fairly ah. complete personalities with kids and photos and dogs and uh, favorite cats and sport. They like sports cars. They provide sports commentary and they have a favorite soap opera. Um, right. And then one day they wake up and suddenly start talking about Politics. The election, or the what election. have you? Yeah, and, and who who and start character assassinating the, yes. the progressive candidate or whoever it is. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. And so this started uh, in authoritarian nations, and would you say it's now been co-opted? Is this fair to say by wannabe authoritarian movements and politicians in democracies? Well, I'd say it's been co-opted by political actors that are um, less afraid to violate our privacy norms. And mm -hmm. don't worry too much about uh, campaign expenditure rules. And, right. uh, you know, these are political actors that are, uh, have significant, they have deep pockets. Right. And um, one of the challenges in the U.S. is that um, political speech has so many different political, so many different legal protections that uh, you can say the craziest of things and suffer no consequences at all. So let's return to where we started, this, this question of Donald yes. Trump and his Twitter account. Yes. Um, I think most Twitter analysts would agree that on his own, if, if Donald Trump was not the president, um, if he was a regular citizen, his invitations to violence um, and racism and sexism would probably fall afoul of Twitter's community standards rules, mm -hmm. but Twitter also has a rule that some public, that per, public personalities who are important in important offices simply have the right to be able to say what they, what they want, because whatever they say is, is of interest to the public. Uh -huh. So that's, I believe that's how the firm would explain why it kicks, it removes the accounts of other people who say very similar things to what Trump says, and, right. but why they don't remove Trump's account itself. Mm -hmm. So the president of the most powerful nation in the world is held to a lower standard than a citizen in that nation. That's, uh, that's an interesting, good, a good observation. Yeah, it's a good observation. 
just throwing that out there. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it's news. It certainly is newsworthy that he's lying. There may be another way to handle uh, the fact that he's lying than to just let it flow. But I understand well, the point. I think this is a very important point because mm-hmm. for the last few, four years, uh, the, the U.S. president has been caught out in multiple kinds of lies. Mm-hmm. Right there, There's lists of them at this point. There's, there's mm-hmm. plenty of people... The Washington Post calls them Pinocchios. Uh, th- there's plenty of plenty of lists of things that he said that are um, not just that they don't make sense; that they actually are clearly patently false. Um, the problem now is that the misinformation that starts with him uh, exposes people to uh, health risks and yes. makes makes communities sicker and. Uh, costs lives. The, the myths around coronavirus uh, are deadly, and yes. and so propagating misinformation or or adding doubt to to what medical experts are advising everybody that that has clear consequences uh, for uh, life and death for vulnerable communities, elderly Americans. Mm-hmm. We actually don't even know which people are most vulnerable yet. And because the funding for the research is somewhat limited, and we don't have a a, a proper uh, you know live in isolation, <laughs> right? Live in right. Uh, shelter in place standard across the whole country. So, right, these are all. I mean, we basically were dealing with a president who's a compulsive liar and who has a movement and a huge budget, a just from the United from the federal government's resources, and then many. Uh, uh, elites that are also propagating the message, and then many foreign authoritarian created bots and legends uh, online that are repeating his myths and adding to them. That's a pre-existing condition in our body politic that makes us more vulnerable to COVID. It makes us more likely to make decisions that will result in a higher death count. Uh, I think that's a that's a pretty horrifying diagnosis. Um, now, I, before we, I, I do want to transition to what are some cures and treatments for this horrifying disease. But I'm wondering if you could tell us, uh, and and we're all going to read your book. Well, I know I am, uh, but I I want to know either from your book or your research because you did so much behind the scenes research and so much both on that high level of data research and then interviewing and talking to people that are on all sides of this problem. Can you give us some concrete examples of major developments politically around the world that happened and perhaps happened that were unfortunate because of a successful application of lie machines, of bots? Uh, I'm thinking perhaps of Brexit or Trump's election, but I, maybe you can break that down. The, those are the two big ones. You, you, you got it. Okay. Those, those are the two big ones. I think they're, they're, they're almost mistakes in the sense that the level of, uh, sometimes we call it computational propaganda, right? It's propaganda generated uh, and delivered by the algorithms that bring you social media. And such large volumes of misinformation about uh, the costs and benefits of Brexit, about whether Hillary Clinton was better than Donald Trump, um, there was such large volumes of misinformation out there that I think many voters simply had low-quality facts at, at their fingertips when they went to vote. And democracy works when, when voters have decent information, 
most people, most of the time, don't talk about politics. But in the three weeks, in the week leading up to an election, they will talk about politics. And that's when you want to have high quality information about the candidates and what the issues are and what, what we need to think about. If you have lousy information, then voters make lousy decisions. They choose politicians who don't believe in evidence. And you know the very fact that we have this concept of evidence-based policymaking now, that's sort of inane, right? We shouldn't <laughs> we, sh- we shouldn't have non-evidence or you know evidence-based <laughs> non-policy making. shouldn't be a special category. <laughs> it shouldn't be a it shouldn't be a concept, but it is right. because uh, if if voters choose politicians who don't work with evidence, then the politicians make poor decisions. Mm-hmm. People's quality of life gets worse. Uh, the economy yes. tanks, and then there's more unhappy voters. Right. So uh, it's it's kind of a vicious circle. Uh, there are other examples around the world, uh, Duterte in the Philippines, uh, okay. Putin, Putin in Russia. Uh, there's several strong men across Africa, uh, Southeast Asia, who've used social media very effectively to, mm. to uh, keep a hold on public conversation, on, on the quality of, uh, quality of public conversation. Uh, right. It's just unfortunate how, how quickly it's spread. Well, you know, it's so interesting. Uh, when I was in grad school, it was at one of the peaks of postmodernism in academe and the idea that there is no objective uh, truth. It's just what we all are perceiving. Mm-hmm. And that was an attempt to sort of uh, go after the canon of established thought. And I think it was considered a, a, a vogue way to uh, critique the authorities in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, now from another direction, from a very authoritarian and totalitarian direction, uh, the uh, those folks, folks are the ones who are now saying, yeah, there's no objective truth. There's no measurable truth. Mm-hmm. It's whatever we get people to think it is. And I don't think that's what some of our wonderful uh, theorists that I had to read in school uh, had in mind. Had in mind. However, it is this idea that, well, it, it, the truth is whatever I say it is today mm-hmm. and tune in tomorrow because it's going to be the something different. <laughs> something different. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Stay contra- tuned. Contradictory. Yeah, yeah. You know, those, one of the core ideas in some of that democracy theory is that everybody has equal access to good quality information. Right. And in, in this, in this imagined world, and newspapers were fairly important, and they had editors who made quality control decisions for us and, right. and did their best to make sure that the public had high-quality information. Well, on social media, those editors aren't there, or, right. or they're, they're your crazy uncle right. who's, who's right. sending stuff that is patently false but, but he thinks might right. be worth forwarding. Worth forwarding, it gives an emotional bump. It has a confirmation bias, as you said. Exactly. I already don't like that guy, and now I'm reading yep. this. I'm going to forward this nonsense about this guy. Exactly. Well, the other side of the confirmation bias is that we mm. tend to, we do tend to trust things that come from family and friends, right? Because we over social media, we we sort of many users assume that the person who's sending them stuff has vetted it or has read it yeah. and is recommending it. But for a lot of the misinformation, it's it's forwarded on the basis of the crazy title um, yes. or some ridiculous video, and that's what makes it uh, clickbait, right? It's political right. clickbait. This is powerful. I mean, and I and I know these kinds of things sometimes divide families. Uh, anecdotally, you know, stop sending me those messages. They're very offensive to me. And then your uncle doesn't talk to you for a year. Um, But that's a microcosm. But then on the macrocosm, we have entire governments essentially either uh, being uh, 
well, we have governments losing elections that weren't supposed to, <laughs> that were actually <laughs> popular and had popular policies, popular policies. through uh, rigged uh, elections that have been rigged, not just mechanically, although that's another plague, voter suppression that's mm-hmm. physical and deliberate, but that there's just this mystification of what's actually happening in the society. Yeah. And as you said, you cannot cast a thoughtful vote in your own interest if you don't know what's actually happening. What's true, yeah. Well, if you don't know what's true. And uh, Philip, I appreciate your point that it's not only someone like Putin having his bots go out there, an army of bots to advertise for Putin mm-hmm. or even to directly advertise for Trump. It's to undermine the very concept of measurable fact in a sense yep. and have a lot of wild stories out there for us to be on the lookout for. And then you get to the point where you tip the balance just enough you know, Wisconsin goes for Trump by a handful of votes and, mm-hmm. you know, Michigan measure perhaps because of all of this amongst other things. Mm-hmm. And then we have a compulsive liar in the White House. Um, so uh, I'm concerned. I, I think you've made a pretty uh, powerful diagnosis of this social plague that is a horrifying pre-existing condition, which amongst many other reasons why it's horrifying, like the endangering our democracy, it makes a a pandemic more deadly when people uh, don't know what the right information is, even of how they should act um, to prevent or contain the disease. Let's take a break. When we come back, Philip, just so that we're not all uh, completely uh, depressed and freaked out. One of the amazing things about your work is you actually have some treatments and cures you can prescribe for uh, our body politics so we can shake these lie machines off. You've got the plague. 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 And we're back with Dr. Philip Howard talking about the plague of lie machines. And uh, Philip, you you really brought it down to us in a harrowing way how this is this is not a game. Uh, This is an undermining of the very foundations of democracy when folks will get online, make friends with people that are actually legends created by foreign agents or authoritarian entities. Uh, Then those friends start to tell them what to think about, not even what to think yet, but what to think about. And then, which is a, a step to then the interventions that affect elections and affect even whether or not we protect ourselves from deadly viruses that can, you know, the death count can go from hundreds of thousands to millions if we handle this wrongly. Um, And uh, democratic governments can be overthrown this way. Uh, Civil wars can be provoked with these machines. Uh, Harrowing, important for us to know about. What are we going to do, Phil? What are we going to do? All is not lost, Larry. There there are things to do, (laughs) um, things we can do. The the challenge is that... uh, It'll take leadership from the Silicon Valley firms, and it'll take some some public policy oversight. I don't think this is not something we can fix. Uh, government can't stay out of this one. Now, I think the core mm-hmm. part of the problem is that the best, the highest quality data about 
public life is not in the public sphere. It's it's in it's held by three, maybe four social media firms in Silicon Valley. So the best health information, the best information about what we want, what we aspire to, it's it's not held in the in the Library of Congress. It's it's no longer held uh, by social scientists. It's not held in the British Library. It's all in Silicon Valley. So the the solution has to involve figuring out how to get that, how to share that data in a way that doesn't violate our, our privacy values. So the first step is an idea I actually stole from the blood from the blood diamonds campaign. As you may know from this campaign, the, the real innovative thinking here is that if the average consumer knew where their diamond came from, if, if a diamond buyer knew that the diamond came from the nastiest hellish pits of Africa, they wouldn't buy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so mm-hmm. providing the provenance of a diamond became key, key to getting people to buy ethical diamonds, right? To buy diamonds that were sourced ethically. Yes. So sometimes it works. Sometimes, I mean, right. just critiques of the program. But basically, if you give people the right quality information, they won't make, they won't choose evil. So, if I may interject, uh, I worked on a because I think that you're saying governments need to take a hand leadership from the corporations, and I would always add the ingredients of very active nonviolent social movements. But that's my bias, right? And I think that we have a role in as movements putting pressure on the companies and putting pressure on the on the politicians to do the right thing here. We made a fake ad. I worked on a project with the Yes Men years ago, and it included a fake ad about blood diamonds and conflict diamonds. So there's a there was a familiar ad uh, of uh, two nice hands of people holding each other's hands, and they have the diamonds on their hands. And this was an ad by a diamonds, you know, a jewelry store, a popular jewelry store. So we just made one of them. We did redid the ad, and one of them was a prosthetic limb from someone who had lost their arm in a conflict uh, 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 in Africa, right, because of diamonds. And so it was very bitterly satirical and ironic, but that fake ad was an attempt to draw your eye and make you think about where the diamonds are coming from. I can't measure how many widgets of social change we made with that ad, but uh, sometimes you just put these things out there, you know, as a, as a commentary. Uh, I, I, yeah. I think the numbers would bear you out. I think the, I think the campaign has been pretty effective. Um, at getting people mm. to be aware, of, at least of where they're mm. buying the diamonds. There's still nasty mine pits and human slavery involved in the diamond trade, but it's uh, yes. it's under control in a way that that was not, that just wasn't feasible twenty years ago, ten years ago. So, right. I think every electronic device that we bring into our household should be able to reveal who the ultimate beneficiary of our data is. Now, there's some people that, mm-hmm. some people who argue that we should be able to take all of our data back or we should have full control of all of our data all the time. I actually don't think that that is practical. I can't see how we would okay. get, I don't, I don't see how we, we would get, ever get to that spot. But if I buy a new smartphone or a smart refrigerator, I should be able to ask it, you know, is is the data on my milk consumption going to the milk lobby? And you might laugh, but yes, there is a milk lobby association. There's a dairy lobby association. And if they can buy the data from your refrigerator, they, they will, right? Because that, because then they can go to Capitol Hill and say that they represent the 
Milk Buyers of America uh, and make some demands. So back to these devices. Right. Whenever we buy a piece of uh, some electronics, uh, we should be able to expect to see a list of what lobbyists are getting that data. Now, to your point of learning from civil society, I think the next step is that we as citizens should be able to add to the list. If, if I want to share my data with public health researchers, uh, with a civic, civic group down the street, uh, with, with my church, with my faith-based group, I should be able to add to the list of beneficiaries for the data. They may never use it. They may not know what to do with it. But, but at the moment, the data that we generate is an important political currency. And right now, all of that flows to Silicon Valley. And at least an aggregate of, of civil society organizations would have the option to say, oh, this is really useful data. Now we know how to reinvest our community resources for the needs of our people in this neighborhood or town or, or identity group. Absolutely. I mean, w- uh, not everybody likes what the Southern Poverty Law Center does, but they would, they would have the capacity to do creative things. Not, but it, not everybody likes what the ACLU does all the time, but they would they would have the capacity to, to do um, important things for our civil liberties with a flow of data like this. Absolutely. And it would be elected. It would be chosen. It's not just being – what you're saying is this is people's choice to do this as opposed to it just being harvested as it is now by powerful corporations. Exactly. So right now it's harvested by powerful corporations and it's sold to consultants who can afford the data scientists to work it over. Mm-hmm. I think one of the ways we get mm-hmm. to need to get mm-hmm. to this, uh, you know, the, the way we can restore democracy is by, by equipping our civil society groups with data scientists. I mean, Human Rights Watch, uh, Global Witness, uh, Greenpeace. Right. Uh, their power, the major civil society groups, and the minor ones, their power and and clout will come from their ability to to learn from from big data. This is a great suggestion. All right. Um, Now, how do we get from A to B? You're saying we we build movements, we we make these demands, we make these, well, demands for reasonable reforms. It's not just about so. It's not just about spreading the awareness of how pernicious the problem is. That's always important. But it's important not just to be against something. To tell tell me what you're for. Tell me what you're going to add and in, to improve conditions and improve our relationship to right. our own data. Well, yeah, exactly. I think um, I I don't fully have the answer of how to get there. So I mm-hmm. a portion of the data that Facebook collects on us and our public life needs to end up in the with our libraries. You know, there are many things. I actually think libraries are the solution to many things. The Mm -hmm. solution to information access. um, Yes. I mean, the provider of books, their community center. Libraries should also be the repository for data that that we want to give to the public life, give back, you know, share with the public. Those are brilliant propositions, and I'm going to start personally circulating those ideas around my circles. I, and I almost I encourage the listeners just start talking about those ideas. These are really important ideas of how to how to start building some resistance to lie machines first of all, um, and how to start to solve the problem. What would be your advice until we get those reforms passed, hopefully as soon as possible, and that uh, we have some control of people being able to use legends and bots, et cetera, in, uh, and that we get to put the information to flow in a more progressive direction. Um, until we've achieved those reforms, what should I do to avoid 
just being played when I'm out there on the internet, when I'm out there on social media, what do I look out for until that time so I don't know that I'm being manipulated by an authoritarian, uh, an employee of an authoritarian state, let's say? Well, the first two things you can do to protect yourself are fairly straightforward. Um, You need to download your credit history and make sure that it's free of mistakes. Make sure that it's clean. And the reason that sounds like a totally banal piece of advice, but an enormous amount of political, an enormous amount of uh, political wisdom is garnered from your credit history. It is married with your voter registration files, with estimates of whether you're voting, who you're voting for, what you're going to do, what'll prompt you to to show up or to stay at home. Uh, And so, I mean, it's uncomfortable to realize that your voter, your, your credit history is representing you in some way in modern democracy, but it is. And so if it's got, if it's got mistakes or inaccuracies, it's actually not representing you well. Mm -hmm. The second thing you can do is, um, clean, give yourself a a mini audit of your social media networks. We all have people in our Facebook networks who we don't actually know, or we really haven't heard from from years. And, now, I wouldn't say get rid of the people you disagree with, uh, but I would okay. say if there's suspicious accounts, people you don't remember, people have actually been dormant for, or sometimes, you know, some of these bot accounts have numbers instead of names, or they have <laughs> right. no, they have no personal, you know, they have no personal information, clean those out. Because those, right. those are the automated accounts that will wake up one day and, and feed you some, some kind of message. So those are the two kind of, they're almost like personal hygiene. They're information hygiene things you can do um, right. just to make sure that you as a citizen are, are coherent and sort of clean. Well, and that, and that you're, well, you know, it's so interesting because in activism, we have this term that goes way back to the radical movements in Spain in the, in the twenties and thirties, the, the idea of having an affinity group and yeah. the affinity group is just a small group of activists committed to a certain cause. And we all know and can account for each other. In other words, it's not just somebody that joined because they came to a random meeting could be anybody. An affinity group is we can vouch for the identity because this is a guy I went to school with. And this is a guy that is my neighbor, but we really know each other. We hang out. So it's much harder to infiltrate that group with an agent provocateur or a spy. And if you keep these little groups of five to 10 people, you know, um, it helps maintain the integrity of the movement and that it's not, now that's a physical group that meets physically. We can try to do the same thing. In other words, in social media and the internet, like have people in your association that you can vouch for to a perhaps a lesser extent, but it's important. I appreciate your point about making sure your credit history is good. It occurs to me, Phil, that um, just like you want to participate in the census and participate accurately so that your demographics are represented in the census, I want my credit history as the economic side of my identity, and I want that to be represented. Yeah. Larry, I always learn from you. I didn't know that that was the origins of the, uh, the concept of an affinity group. But, <laughs> yes, but but you're right. Um, is it, it dates to the Spanish Civil War? Is that 
that, yeah, yeah, like the movements that led up to the Spanish Civil War. So the progressive folks who got democracy established in the Spanish Civil uh, before the Spanish Civil War, and then unfortunately Franco and the fascists uh, uh, declared war on them, yeah. and, and there was a terrible tragedy. But yeah, from the world of social movements and women's rights and, and uh, anarchist groups and democratic groups, the affinity group model, mm -hmm. and we still have it today because it's just common sense and it just makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, um, and it, it, I think in in a lot of democracies up until maybe ten years ago, um, it when conserv conservatives also have affinity groups, mm -hmm. and they can be part of healthy functional deliberation, they can be part of a civic discourse, and usually when liberal affinity groups and conservative affinity groups and and radical. Uh, um, progressive affinity groups discuss things, some kind of consensus or middle road emerges. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, in the last few years, misinformation from the Russian government and ultra-conservatives, white supremacists, mm -hmm. has radicalized the mainstream conservative yes. and, and pulled them in the wrong, pulled them out to that extremist conservative position. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think misinformation... You know, there, there is a little bit of misinformation on the far left, mm -hmm. but the research shows that the vast majority of it is on the far right. It's extremist, mm -hmm. conspiratorial, sensationalist. It's commentary masked as news. The audience for it is on the far right, and unfortunately, increasingly, mainstream conservatives. Yes. Well, as Stephen Colbert pointed out when he was roasting President uh, G.W. Bush, reality has a left-wing bias. Now, he said that in his character as the ultra-right-wing commentator, but taking that on using irony, the idea that I'm a little frustrated with reality and facts because they don't match my ideology enough, so I have to just make up my own facts. <laughs> I can't just work with the, the data of the observable world. It's, it's not supporting my idea system. Um, now, Philip, these are all wonderful uh, helpful prescriptions, and, and I'm so glad we got to reflect on it. Um, as you know, because I warned you, we do have a uh, part of the podcast here where we invite the guests to do something creative on the issue, that the plague that they've diagnosed and for which they've prescribed treatments. Um, we've had wonderful songs. We've had uh, original poetry. You had an amazing idea and I'm wondering if you can just tell us what it, before you launch into this performance art piece, can you just tell us what, what it is that you proposed? I was amazed by it. Well, um, the, the data that we work with as social scientists uh, involves big scoops of information from social media about you know, what people are sharing, what people are saying. And one of the data sets we're playing with uh, these days is from YouTube. It's, uh, you know, the site is one of the most important sources of health information, uh, for better or for worse. A lot yes. of people use YouTube for, uh, to figure out what's going on, how well they're self-isolating or not self-isolating. Uh, and so I thought I would read out some of the titles. I've got a list of, uh, I've got a list of the, the most commonly shared misinformation videos. So informations uh -huh. that are, um, have severe political spin or are clearly wrong or are trying to distract uh, from the issues. I've got a list of, well, it's thousands and thousands of these videos. 
Unfortunately. Unfortunately. Um, and I thought I would read some of the titles uh, poetically to you. Yes, I think it's a brilliant idea. So we're going to take a break and then we'll come back and, and hear this amazing work of performance art, which did make me think of William Shatner, but it also, you were talking about Benedict Cumberbatch has done something similar. So basically the greats, you're, you're just following I'm emulating the greats. the greats. I'll try to read in, dr- in a dramatic tone, uh, yes, some please. of these ridiculous, uh, ridiculous YouTube if, video titles. And if I can figure out again, you know, I'm an artist and uh, have a liberal arts background, but if I can figure out how to put some dramatic reverb on your voice as you do this, Mm -hmm. the audience will get to enjoy that effect as well uh, with your permission. Uh, Before we go, though, uh, for our break before this, Phil, I just wanted to say thank you so much for not selling out because a man like you, Oxford professor, you're celebrated around the world. You're, this book is going to be, I can't wait to read it personally. Uh, yeah, you could be making a lot working for the other side. And uh, you would just be one more metastasizing cell of the plague. And uh, thank you so much for actually being a white blood cell, a phagocyte, as it were, in our body politic. You're chomping on those little uh, the little plague cells of the bots and the lie machines. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Larry. Um, <laughs> Philip Howard, we're going to take a break and come back and, and hear this amazing and astonishing piece. I got a fever. You've got the plague. You've got the plague. Guess what? I got a fever. So these are these are videos that one would find searching for coronavirus information on YouTube. Conspiracy theories, warning signs with Shane Dawson. Why I hate Ice Age Baby. Meme review. Clap emoji, clap emoji, number 75. Unmasking Mr. E to face reveal he's a YouTuber visiting Spy Ninja's safe house in 24-hour challenge. 13. Mysterious Ocean Phenomenon. David Icke, the truth behind the coronavirus pandemic, COVID-19 lockdown, and the economic crash. Truth, China is hiding from the world. C. Bill Gates's chilling pandemic warning to Trump before the coronavirus outbreak. 24-hour online shopping challenge. Will a huge asteroid hit Earth in April 2020? NASA, 29th of April 2020. Bob Dylan, murder most foul, official audio. Instructional video for sewing the Olsen mask, COVID-19. Joe Rogan experience, flight companion. How Dr. Wolfgang Wadgang sees the current pandemic. Jeffrey Epstein, the game of the global elite, full investigative documentary. Bill Gates creates microchip vaccine implants to fight coronavirus. Coronavirus prophecy from Prophet Emmanuel Makawindana. From Germany, 55-year-old minister commits suicide as he worries about COVID-19 impacts. 
Bill Gates outlines what he thinks the world is learning about pandemics. Wake up, all China citizen, she said. Insane hide-and-seek in the new Buckethead Squad House. COVID-19, an easy way to know you don't have it. Matthew McConaughey, about coronavirus and his message to humankind. More good news? Citizen reporters go and do what the media won't. Mark of the Beast. Bill Gates wants every person on Earth to receive a vaccination with digital ID. And seen. And thank you. Thank you, Dr. Philip Howard. That was stunning. By the way, just as a little extra bonus for the listener, if you've seen any of those titles and then clicked on them and then thought they were authentic, now you know. And be on the lookout for anything like that. Yet another gift from Philip Howard against disinformation <laughs> with an amazing rendition. Thank you. Um, and remember, everybody, COVID is a virus. It doesn't watch Fox News and it doesn't listen to InfoWars. It does what it does based on science and biology. Uh, Let's try to inform each other appropriately. Let's try to vet our sources. Please don't forward things that you don't know anything about and haven't been vetted. Let's work together on, as Philip said, like informational and data hygiene. And through collective hygiene, perhaps we can, in a sense, through data management and truth support, we can shelter in place in a way that isolates and starves the virus of authoritarian disinformation and starve the lie machines of the fuel. The fuel they get is our own gullibility and our own desire to have uh, our prejudices confirmed with hateful means. Thank you so much, Dr. Howard, and uh, I can't wait to read Lie Machines. Thank you for joining us from Oxford. Thank you, Larry. It's such a pleasure, Philip. A pleasure. Take good care, and we'll talk again. You've been listening to The Plague Podcast. I'm your host, L.M. Bogad, and for more information on my books and performance work, you can go to lmbogad.com. Sound design and music by Jason Montero and my other friend named Jay. You're